0: For the first time since we started in June, we were in Monte Vista more this week than we were elsewhere, um, and so it was pretty awesome, uh, and just uh, just in this season of transition we've been in, I just thank you all for your prayers and everything else, uh, continue to do so, but we are, man, it feels good, it feels good, so um, I'm going to invite you to, we're going to open up, we're going to be in Matthew 28 today. Uh, We're going to get there in just a minute. Before we do, let me just remind you, last week, we talked about getting to the same place at the same time as a church, as a people of God. To do that, we talked about our vision here at Calvary to make Jesus non-ignorable in Montevista, Vista, and to the ends of the earth. And just a reminder, we don't believe that Jesus needs to be made non-ignorable. He is non-ignorable. Amen. But by our lives, we point to that non-ignorableness, and that is, we believe as a church, our role. And let me tell you, it is good to get to the goal together, but it's also good to travel the road together. And that is where we need to be not only united in our vision as a church, but also our mission. Picture this, two travelers leave the same place at the same time for the same destination. One travels by car, the other travels by foot. Same destination, same path, but very different modes of transportation and as such, very different arrival times. This is why it's not only good to know where we are going together, but also how we are going to get there together. And so looking at our vision last week to make Jesus non-ignorable in Monte Vista and to the ends of the earth, today we're going to look at our mission. And our mission is to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again, just so you have it, you're going to hear it a lot, to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus. And just in case you don't know this already, this is not an invention of the Calvary family of churches, or of this church, or of me. This mission is actually not unique to us. It is the very mission that we have been as disciples of Jesus called to by Christ himself in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Let me read this for us right now. I know to many of us this will be a reminder. Very few of us will have heard these words the first time right now. But let me read this for us. Jesus said to them, these are some of his final words. He said, "'Go therefore and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you are brand spanking new to the church or any church to the Bible to Jesus, then you may not know, but this bit of scripture is nicknamed The Great Commission. If you don't know that now, I would urge you to remember it. Not just because someday you might answer that in a Bible trivia game. But because this is the purpose to which Christ has called his church. And as part of his church, this is our mission as well. Now, if you've been a Christian for very long, maybe 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, I don't know if there's any of us 90 or more, but you've heard sermons on the Great Commission before. I've preached, I don't know how many sermons, on the Great Commission. And we say, hey, do we really need one more sermon on the Great Commission? And my answer to you is yes. Let me prove it to you. One question, how have you contributed to making of disciples this week, this month, this year, this lifetime? If you don't have a really firm answer to that question, then you need one more sermon on the Great Commission, and I need to preach one more sermon on the Great Commission. If in a year we ask that question and every one of us can raise our hand and say, this is how I contributed to making disciples this year, and this is how I contributed this month and this week, then I'll tell you, I will never preach here again about the Great Commission. But if anybody says, you know, I'm not really sure, then it's going to be time for another one. Because this is the mission to which we've been called by Christ himself. And so church, I believe we need a sermon on the Great Commission. I believe we do. I believe there is maybe no greater message than what we, the church, need to hear at a time like this. And so today what we're going to do is look at the Great Commission. We're going to look at these verses. And we're going to see six keys to making joyful, passionate disciples. Now there's more we could preach even out of this passage, but we're only going to land six today. So let me just dive into these. Number one, the first key to making a joyful, passionate disciple is to go. It is to go. This is Jesus's word. He said, verse 19, go. Go. Go therefore. Now I like this because it takes us all and it puts us on the hook. It does not take us off the hook. See, most of us, when we think about making disciples and we think particularly about evangelism, but that's not just what it means to make disciples. We think about evangelism. We also think about growing immature believers into stronger believers. And we we think about growing strong believers into stronger believers, right? This is all part of making disciples. Most of us will say this. If it comes to the opportunity, if somebody speaks to me, About it. If they ask me a question, if I have an open door, then I will gladly speak about Jesus. But until they do, we don't say a word. But Jesus didn't say, Wait therefore and make disciples. He said, Go therefore and make disciples. This means we cannot be a people who wait for the opportunity. We cannot be a people to wait for the lost people in the community to come to us. Why? Because lost people don't seek Jesus. The scriptures tell us that. Yeah. First John 4.19 We love because he first loved us. See, we who are part of the church, who love God and love the church and love the community, we do so not because of anything we've done, but because he loved us first. He opened the door to our hearts and our minds and our lives turning to him. He opened that door. He came first. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ Died for us. He didn't say, Hey, show up, come be interested in me, and then I'll die for you. While we were still sinners, while we were still running in the other direction, Christ died for us, for you and I. See, the lost people don't usually pursue Jesus, broken people don't usually pursue Jesus. Most lukewarm Christians do not pursue Jesus. Even growing Christians, even growing Christians will not always seek after the growth they need on their own. What they need is Christ's disciples, so you and I, to go to them, and to love them, and encourage them, and build them up, and challenge them, and speak the gospel. If we're going to make joyful, passionate disciples in church, we need to be a people that go. We cannot wait for them to just walk in. Now, some will just walk in because the Spirit's already working on them, or because somebody years ago went to them. and So it's been milling in their mind and their heart for years. We gotta go. We gotta go. They need us to go. Now, what does this mean? Here's a couple things this means. It means, number one, that we need to be a people who go to where lost people are. Now, let me just be really clear here for a moment. That does not mean that we're going to a strip club on Friday night. Okay? That does not mean that we are entering dens of iniquity or whatever you want to call them. But what it does mean is that we need to be a people who don't just spend time in this room, in this building, on this property, but that we as a church would go into the community. I'll tell you, yesterday Betsy and I accidentally went to the farmer's market in Alamosa. And through that endeavor, I added three different people to my I-100 list. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's fine. Let me tell you, remind you, when Pastor Jeff was here about a month and a half ago, he invited all of you to participate in an I3 list. That means he invited you all as a church to come up with three names, people that you are thinking about inviting, investing in, right? And hopefully you're thinking and praying through that. Well, as a pastor, the challenge is not three. In fact, if I'm honest, the past, the the My role as a as a church planner replanner, I've been told my role is not I one hundred, but that's where I'm starting. It's actually I two hundred and fifty. And my goal by the end of August is to have two hundred and fifty names on my list of people that I've met in this community that I'm praying for, investing in, and inviting. Now I'm not saying that to brag. This is not my natural skill set. I prefer to be a discipler of the people inside the building. But I know that can't be where it ends. And so church, we need to be a people that go to places where they are. Farmers markets, school, work, the park, the grocery store. Let me ask this. When you get gas, do you ever pay in cash? If you do, do you know the name of the person that you hand your money to every week? It's a great, simple way to add a name to your list. Okay? Okay. It also means that we set aside a time as a church and as individuals to pray. I'll tell you one of the things in my life that has been so impactful in reaching, is in going, is prayer in the morning. And I say to the Lord, Lord, who do you want me to reach out to? And and then I give him time to speak. And there are a lot of times when there's a name that comes up from church and I know I've got to reach out to that person. Or there's a name from an I-3 or 5 or 150 or 250 list that comes to mind and I think oh, I've got to reach out to this person today. I'll tell you some of the most fruitful ministry I've had in 20 years is that endeavor right there. Why? Because Jesus knows who needs help today. Jesus knows and the Spirit knows and he will tell us. He'll tell us. But it also means we need to set time aside to go. Do you have time in your week or your month or your year where you are deliberately seeking out to love lost people, to love immature believers that need a church community, and even to love the mature believers that just need a good push and an encouragement and a good word? All right, number two. We're gonna make joyful, passionate disciples. Hear this. We need to make disciples. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples. Hear this. What he didn't say is go, therefore, and make converts. Nor did he say go, therefore, and make people who raise their hand and say a prayer. He said go, therefore, and make disciples. Now hear this. I'm all about an altar call where people raise their hand and accept Jesus, where people verbally pray and accept the Lord. I think that's certainly a part of what we need to do. But if it ends there, if we celebrate that and don't go any further, then we are the ones falling short. I will tell you, I'm moving here from Lahana. And evangelism was really hard there, but not for the reasons you might think it was hard. In fact, sharing the gospel was fairly easy. The trouble was, almost everybody I ever shared the gospel with, or almost everybody I ever invited to church, would say the same thing. Oh, I'm good. I prayed prayer with Pastor John. That's not his name. And he's my pastor, and that's my church. The trouble is, over seven years there, I heard that maybe 150, 200 times. The thing is, that church only had 20 people going to it. None of them were going. Finally, a few years ago, I got the chance to go to a funeral at that church. And here's what I figured out Pastor John had inoc- inoculated most of the community to Jesus. Because every time there was a funeral, every time there was anything, he would lead everybody in the whole room in sinner's prayer. They'd all raise their hands and they'd all accept Christ. But none of them actually did. Few months later, I went to another funeral at the same church, and guess what? Half the people in the room were the same people. They all raised their hands again, and they all prayed out loud, and they all said, "I'm going to follow Jesus." But let me tell you, I don't think any of them were. We got to make disciples, not just people who say with their mouths that they're going to follow Jesus. I shudder. At the words in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says this. He says, Lord, or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I shudder over that because it's not those who never go and don't follow Jesus he's speaking to. He's speaking about people like me and you who are actually involved in church and preaching and prophesying and doing great things. And I got to tell you, if some of those people, if some of us don't have any hope in that, what hope does the person that raised their hand once And never thought about Jesus again the rest of their life have. What we see in this little passage is that to be a disciple is someone who has a relationship with Jesus. Scholars for many years have talked about what a disciple is. And in the day of Jesus, a disciple was someone who was said to walk in the dust of their master. Now we get that around here. We live in a dusty place. The master's walking along the road. You're following right behind. He's kicking up dirt. And where's it going? All over you. The question is, are we close enough to Jesus that when he kicks up dirt and dust, that it lands on us? Or are we not that close to him? Are we like, you know what? I don't really like Jesus's dust and his mess. So I'm going to keep my distance because it's a whole lot cleaner and a whole lot safer. A disciple, someone who loves and obeys Jesus and is learning to apply the gospel to absolutely every part of their lives. Mark Halleck, pastor at Calvary Englewood, said that. Learning to apply the gospel to every part of their lives. Church, not just our sin nature, not just our brokenness, but all the good too. Of learning to apply the gospel to how I parent and how I how I am a husband how I pastor, how I am a neighbor to the people in my community in the the neighborhood I'm in, how I work, how I play, learning to apply the gospel to all parts of life, spending enough time with Jesus that he affects every part of our lives. Amen? Amen? We can't just make converts. We've got to make disciples who are in a relationship with Jesus. All right, number three. Number three keys to making joyful, passionate disciples is to keep an eye on all nations, is to keep an eye on all nations. Church, here's what it says. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Now, I often say whenever I see the word all, I tend to lean into that. All means all. It includes the people we like, it includes the people we don't like, it includes the people we're good at reaching, and it includes the people that we feel like we're bad at reaching. Shortly after the Great Commission, Jesus built on it, speaking in Acts 1 8, just before his ascension into heaven, and he said this to those same disciples he spoke the Great Commission to. He said, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, this idea carries forward. You've probably heard this before. If you've heard a sermon on this passage, number one, Jerusalem, this is the city they were in. This is where they lived. For us, most of us, this would be Monta Vista, Alamosa. It might be this sort of region that we have right here, right? This, this grouping of towns. Judea was the greater region, right? Now, we might think about that here as the San Luis Valley. We might think about that as the state of Colorado. It depends how you want to think about that. Then we get to Samaria, and Samaria is an interesting place because Samaria was the enemy of Israel, right? If you're a faithful Jew, then you didn't like these people at all. But Samaria was the farthest extent that most of them would think about traveling. Most of them didn't go any farther than that in the time of their lives. Sumeria is the end, the extent. When we lived in Lohana, we knew people that would never go past Pueblo, and their entire lives had never been past Pueblo. I imagine there's people up here in this valley that would be much the same way. It's like, we're willing to drive over here, but man, I'm not touching the springs. In Denver, right out. Right? That was Sumeria. They, They wish wouldn't go beyond it. And then the ends of the earth is, of course, the place where we are called to if we are willing and if we are called by God to go as missionaries, as gospel representatives to dangerous, hard, difficult places. And Jesus said, I want you to carry it all the way from the Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Now, let me tell you really quick right now, we are not this year going to spend a lot of time focusing on the Sumeria and the ends of the earth. We've got other stuff in front of us. We've got a church that we are rebuilding right now. We've got to grow this community. We've got to reach our neighbors, our community. We've got to do some of that work. Okay, That's, that's where our focus is going to be this year. Maybe next year. But while we do that, I do not want us to lose sight of the Samaria and the nations. Why? Because we're part of a greater network that means that even while we focus locally, there is amazing world stuff happening. We are part of the SBC, Southern Baptist Churches. You may or may not know this. I'm really prideful about this. We are part of a group of people that have the largest missionary agency in the world. We have more missionaries around the world than any other agency and most other combined We have a church planting network in America that rivals every other endeavor. And by the way, we are beneficiaries of that right now because you may not know this. I am actually a North American Mission Board missionary. And we are working together to reach this community. Pretty awesome, huh? Not only that, but we are part of the SBC, which has a disaster relief ministry that rivals almost every other non-governmental agency in the world. By some accounts, we are larger than the Red Cross. So even while we may have our sights set on Monte Vista and the St. Louis Valley, there is amazing other work happening that we fund and we pray for and that we are a part of, but not just that. Most of you probably don't know that now that we're a part of the Calvary family of churches, there is an existence of something called the Calvary Global. And we have missionaries in Southeast Asia, Africa, and in France. With the goal of more and more of seeing God made non-ignorable, right? Not just in the local church, but all the way to the ends of the world, I say this because I want us to take joy and at least some level of pride in being part of something bigger than us. That even while we focus on on the broken and the lost here in this valley, there is amazing work happening otherwise. And so here in this valley, what I want us to be thinking about as we're thinking about what it looks like for us to reach our Jerusalem and our Judea is that, we need to be a city on a hill or a lighthouse. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew chapter 5. I'm not going to read it. The scriptures tell us that we live in a dark world. Sometimes we forget that. Our neighbors are living in darkness. Well, we, by no means of our own, all the gift and the blessing of God, are living in the light. We are a lighthouse in the darkness. And what I love to picture is, is God's church, His faithful. You can think about this in buildings and homes, or you can think about this in individual Christians' lives. As we go around, as our homes and our churches reach the lost, we are a lighthouse in a dark place. The more people we reach, the more light there is. The more times we spend bouncing around in our community going and visiting people, checking on people, loving our neighbors, loving the lost, the more light there is in a dark place. Amen? Lighthouses have two purposes. The first is to warn of danger. Right? They say, rocks ahead. Right? They say, if you keep coming this way, you are going to shipwreck. That's the first purpose of a lighthouse. The second purpose of a lighthouse is to tell a ship that's been out in the sea for too long that home is here. That there is hope and there is rest and there is peace. Church, we need to have those two functions. To be the warner of danger. Eternity is coming. And there is hope and rest and home here. We need to reach the nations, and that includes our own. That includes our own. Number four, we're want to make joyful, passionate disciples of Jesus that we need to baptize them. <laughs> we're Baptists. We love baptism. We should. For most of us, baptism was the first step of our obedience to Christ. For some of us, it may not have been, but it followed soon after. For some of us, we actually may still be in disobedience because we've never been baptized. Baptism is the first, should be the first step of obedience. It signifies that someone is actually becoming a disciple and not just a convert. And that is especially true in a culture like our own that has initially subtly and now in great strides, leaps and great pains takes to separate itself from the Christian church. We now live in a culture where we're getting baptized, this saying out loud to the world around us, to our family, to our friends. Hey, I was this before, but I'm now this now. I used to be only in allegiance to myself and to my family. But now I'm in allegiance to Christ and to the scriptures and the church. Baptism is the way that a new believer says to everyone around them, I'm in. And man, that is a huge encouragement to the church. It is a huge encouragement to the church, to you and I, when somebody has has gone through that conversion process and come to the place where in obedience they would declare to everyone involved that they love Jesus. And I love it. I love it. I dream about the day that there's water flowing out of this thing right here. Right? Obedience to God comes first in baptism. Let me just tell you, if you are a believer who has not been baptized, that we need to have a conversation about what baptism is. If you've never been baptized, if you've never made the decision to be baptized, we should have a conversation. Number five, we want to make joyful, passionate disciples that we need to teach them. We need to teach them. Verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, all that he commands. Now, what does he command? I mean, that's not just limited to the New Testament. That is, that is all of the scriptures, right? Teaching all that I have commanded. Now, what does it take to teach someone? All that Christ has commanded. Let me just tell you real quick. I believe it takes more than any one of our lifetimes. As an example, John MacArthur. Most of us may know the name John MacArthur. He's a pastor of a really big church out in California. Some people really love him. Some people really hate him. (laughs) He has spent his entire career preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, all the way through only the New Testament. He started in his 20s. He retired in his Late seventies, early eighties, I believe, and in the course of his career, he managed to only preach the New Testament, preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and he he did the entire thing. That doesn't even count the Old Testament. Now, I, if you ever listen to a John Pipe or John MacArthur sermon, then you know that. He didn't ignore the Old Testament. In fact, his New Testament sermons are jam packed full of the Old Testament. But what he devoted himself to was preaching the New Testament faithfully, which means he had to go through the Old as well. But it took him an entire lifetime to go through one third of the Bible Sunday mornings. Most of you will not give me the chance to do that. You'll die first. Just be fair and honest. Even the young people in here won't get there (laughs) because I'll die (laughs) before we get to that point. So what does it take? Well, it takes far more than Sunday mornings to teach disciples all that Jesus has commanded us. It takes our lives. It takes our Mondays and our Tuesdays and our Wednesdays and our Thursdays and our Fridays and our Saturdays. It takes going fishing with our buddies. It takes going to the grocery store with someone, right? It takes all kinds of what I call, what we want to call doing life together. And as a church, we need to be doing some life together, just spending time together, growing together. We also can do that with our neighbors. I had a really good friend. His name was Jim, Jim Dengis. He died a couple of years ago. Sort of tragic, very sudden He was probably the most joyful, passionate believer I've ever known in my entire life. I mean, I just spent time with this guy. And like, no matter how bad my day or my week was, like, Jesus was good and and we were moving forward in the kingdom. That kind of guy. He had only been a Christian for about 10 years. He had a buddy that he went hiking with and camping with. A couple times a year, all over the world, they they did high points. They never did uh, him... Everest but they did a lot of the other high points around the world they were adventurers and his buddy was a solid believer and they'd get back to their tent at the end of the evening whatever time they had been hiking and they would get there and he'd sit there and read the Bible and Jim would make fun of him and they did this for years and they did it for years and one day Jim asked a question and his friend was there to answer and suddenly Jim's world opened up and he realized what he had been missing and he gave his life to Jesus and he became a joyful, passionate disciple of Jesus. Why? Because he had a guy who went hiking with him and camping with him. Some of us make this far more complicated than it needs to be. we have to spend time with people. I had a friend uh, in college and I will tell you when I was in college, like most college students, I was an utter mess. Isn't to say I'm not an utter mess even now, but I was really a mess then. And when it came to marriage, marriage was the farthest thing from my list of life goals I could have imagined. That doesn't mean I didn't want a relationship, but marriage was out there. My parents were divorced. My mom divorced a couple times. Every friend I had, their parents were divorced. I had nobody that I knew whose marriage was intact. So I remember thinking, why the heck would I get married? We had a set of friends in college who were a little bit older than us. They were getting married. And I will tell you, one of them, his name was Tim. His wife's Mandy. I don't think he ever taught me anything. I don't think he ever said, hey, Matt, let's talk about this. Let's, let's teach on something. But in the course of a few years of friendship with him, he transformed me in my view, in my heart. And I can be honest, if it wasn't for him and, and, and his wife, I don't, Betsy and I would not be married now, I don't think. because he did a life with us. Betsy lived at their house for, for a year and a half or so in a spare bedroom. We spent time there because that's where she was. So I spent time there. <laughs> it takes a lifetime to teach what we need to teach and it's worth teaching. Amen? Amen. All right, number six. If we are going to make joyful, passionate disciples that we need to trust in Christ's power and his presence. Let me read the end of this verse set for us. He says, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Church, we are not on our own in this. Jesus promises that we do this. He will be with us in it. And the reality is that what it means to be a disciple is to be someone who trusts in Christ's power. And who trusts in Christ's presence. That's what it means to be a disciple. At its very heart and very core, we come into being a disciple because we trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross that all of our sins are forgiven. Not only that, but we grow in our faith because we trust that what he says is the right thing for us to be and to do as we read his word. And then we make disciples of one another by trusting that God's got this, that God is working, that he is for not only us, but for those that we're working with. To grow into the disciples they were made to be. So the whole essence of the Christian faith is to trust in Christ's power and his presence. And I will just tell you this. I've met a lot of Christians over the years. I've met two categories of Christians. One is a category of Christians who are full of joy and passion. The other category is a group of Christians who are kind of begrudging and and grumpy and Who knows what? And I'll tell you the single biggest difference that I have found in their lives is that one group trusts in Christ's power and his presence and the other doesn't. That is the difference. I have never met a joyful, passionate Christian who did not fully trust in Christ's power because he saved them. And they know there's nothing they can contribute to that. It is a free gift from him that brought them in. The grumpy person's out there trying to figure out still how to do it on their own. And every time they sin, it crushes them. Because they don't trust Jesus' salvation. They're still working out of their own works. Church, we who have been forgiven by Christ, by no work of our own, we who have been called to this purpose have every reason to be joyful and passionate. And here's the question. When you think about who you want to spend time with, not who you do spend time with, but who you want to spend time with, do you choose to spend time with grumpy, boring people? Or do you choose to spend your time with joyful, passionate people? The second, right? Right? How much more so? How much more so when those people are joyful and passionate about the one thing that matters most in this universe, Jesus Christ? Here's my conviction. My conviction as I read scripture and as I read the Great Commission and as I read passages that talk about joy and passion and all these things, it is that if we as a church are joyful and passionate, other people are going to want to be a part of that. That's what I found. It's what you see in Scripture. It's what you see in Scripture. It's what we see in life. So church, the question for all of us is, are we going to be all about making joyful, passionate disciples? Jesus said to go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and beholding, he says, he will always be with us. Amen? Amen. Church, we want to be about making Jesus non-ignorable in Montevista Vista and to the ends of the earth by making joyful, passionate disciples together. And let me tell you, what that means is making joyful, passionate disciples who make joyful, passionate disciples, who make joyful, passionate disciples Who make joyful, passionate disciples. Who make joyful, passionate disciples. Because here's the reality. You're only here because there was a joyful, passionate disciple before you. And because there was a joyful, passionate disciple before them. And how great is it that we just get to be a part of what's been going on all the way from the beginning. To make joyful, passionate disciples. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your vision and your mission for us, Lord. We thank you that we don't need to invent this because it's all over your scriptures. We thank you, God, for the calling you've placed on our church and on the individual lives of the Christians that make up this church. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified by the work that we would bring before you. I pray, Lord God, that any of us who may find ourselves falling short in this today, and I know that that we all do, we can all think of times, Lord, when, when we had an opportunity and we didn't take it or when we could have created an opportunity and we didn't dive down that road. And Lord, we know that there are times when we just don't even know what to do next to make disciples. But Lord, we turn to you. We confess our sins to you in this, Lord, our faults in this, Lord, the shortcomings, the missing of the mark, God. And we pray that you would speak your forgiveness to us in your reassurance to us of our salvation, the assurance that we have only in you and the work you've done in us. I pray, Lord God, that as we would come into the time of the Lord's Supper in just a moment, Lord God, that you would be glorified and that we would come before you in honesty and that this would be a meaningful time in our minds, in our hearts, Lord, in our faith, as we are reminded what you've done for us, as we so are every single week that we do this. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, and we give you the glory. Amen.